0: Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. On today's show, Danny Carbassian tells his story of being at Arsenal, where he remains the only American ever to score for the Gunners' first team. Including the surreal story of going on trial as a Virginia high schooler and being thrown into a first-team training session with Arsenal's famed Invincibles.
1: It was a remarkably special time at the club as well. Guys like you know, Henri Bergkamp, Perez, Vieira, all these guys were there, and it was kind of just—they're already jogging around the pitch, so just join in with them and have a you know hour and a half session playing with arguably some of the biggest stars in the world.
0: All that and my thoughts on soccer coming up.
1: Take one
0: here we go with my three thoughts on soccer first up i love european soccer i love the intensity i love the passion i love the way the sport saturates the culture all over the continent i'm fired up for the champions league knockout rounds to start this week too but i'm not thrilled about something important here we are in the middle of february and teams are running away with the titles in the top european leagues Whether it's Chelsea, Bayern Munich, or Juventus, the league leaders are miles beyond the competition at this point. Even the race in Spain isn't as close as it looks in the table. Real Madrid has a one-point lead on Barcelona, but with two games in hand, that's more like a seven-point lead for Real Madrid, with the away game at Barcelona already played. I love European soccer, but it's frustrating when the league titles are decided so early, and this season it's happening earlier even than normal. One U.S. television executive I know thinks the European League should have a one-game final between the first and second-place teams in the league to decide the champion. And while that idea would be sacrilegious to many, I think it's an idea worth considering. Take two. Next up, now more than ever, if you're into watching Yanks abroad, the country to look at is Germany. Not a single American played in the English Premier League this past weekend, which has sadly been a common occurrence this season. Germany was a different story, however. No fewer than eight Americans played in the Bundesliga over the weekend, with seven of them starting. Christian Pulisic, Fabian Johnson, John Brooks, Bobby Wood, Timmy Chandler, Alfredo Morales, Aaron Johansson, Terrence Boyd. Boyd even scored his first goal for Darmstadt in an upset of Polisic's Borussia Dortmund, and followed that with his trademark goal celebration where he puts his Cyclops eye tattoo on his arm up to his face and runs around like a maniac. It wasn't long ago that England was the country of choice for American players in Europe. Now, it's Germany, and that's not a bad thing.
1: Take three.
0: Finally, I think you'll enjoy this week's interview with Danny Carbassio, the Arsenal Yankee. Even though Carbassioon had to retire at age 22 due to injuries, his story is fascinating on multiple levels. That's true in playing terms, where he didn't throw away his shot, getting into an Adidas high school all-star camp off the wait list, winning the Golden Boot that week, and earning a trial and contract with Arsenal's Invincibles. His story is also fascinating in terms of his post-playing career. After retiring at 22, Carbassioon could have been bitter. But he kept going in soccer, becoming an Arsenal scout, writing a book, and starting a digital company that just announced a round of funding this week. Here's my interview with Danny Carbassian. Our guest today is the only American who has ever scored for Arsenal's first team. Danny Carbassian played for Arsenal, Ipswich Town, and Burnley before injuries curtailed his playing career. But he's still active in the soccer world as a scout with Arsenal who discovered Gedeon Zalala and Joel Campbell and as a founder of Fury 90, a mobile fantasy manager game, and the company Soccer Without Limits. Danny wrote an excellent book, The Arsenal Yankee, which you can get on Kindle and online at TheArsenalYankee.com. Danny, thanks for joining me. I'm doing well. I appreciate you taking the time to join me. Uh, you're in London, I'm here in New York, but thanks to the internet, we can actually have a conversation here. Um, first off, just wanted to say I reread your book again this week ahead of our interview. It's a really good read. I recommend it for everyone listening here. It's a nice window, in my opinion, into a pretty rare story still of a young American being discovered by a top Premier League club, a top European club, and going over and getting the opportunity to to play with that club and an amazing era of that club as well. That was the Invincibles era at Arsenal. And just to start here, is it possible if you could tell these, the amazing story of how Arsenal discovering you came about in 2003?
1: Absolutely. I um, So I grew up in Roanoke, Virginia um, and kind of went through the whole ODP system uh, playing travel soccer and whatnot. And going into my, I suppose going into my senior year when I was a junior, yeah, um, I was actually waitlisted for the Adidas ESP camp, uh, which was conveniently uh, in Wilmington, North Carolina that year, uh, which was, you know, in the States, I suppose, only a seven or eight hour drive, I think, from Roanoke, which was uh, close enough. But um, so, I was, so I got wait-listed for that and several days actually before the camp started, um, I got a phone call from Adidas while I was in my backyard kind of pounding a ball against my wall, frustrated that I wasn't going to be going to that camp. Um, and a, uh, a representative from the camp was on the phone and said somebody had dropped out at the last minute and that if I could make it down to Wilmington, then I would have a spot at the camp. So I, I rang my my parents and asked them if um, they'd be willing to drive me you know, several hours down the coast. Uh, they happily obliged, and I kind of, you know, I went there with the hopes of getting a college, you know, a college scholarship. I was hoping that uh, your UVAs or Dukes and UNCs would, you know, I'd finally get a chance to to show them in a really competitive setting that. Um, that I'd provide value at their schools and in their programs. And uh, I went, I just happened to be kind of by, you know, by fate, I was put into a team um, where the coaches were former uh, Arsenal players. So um, Bob McNabb and Paul Mariner uh, were the coaches there. Uh, and during the week, they actually, they, they were asked kind of like funny questions like, you know, could you ever see yourself playing overseas? If, if the opportunity came about, um, would you take it? You know, being American, being so far away from home, Um, Being so set on kind of wanting to go to school and all that, Um, and then they kept asking if if I was positive that my mom was born in Italy. Uh, (laughs) I I had no idea. Uh, I had no idea why they wanted to know where my mom was born. I I found it kind of weird, Um, but I I soon realized that the Italian passport or any European passport in general was uh, vital for playing uh, here in England. So I um, yeah I, I ended up actually winning golden boot at the camp. Um, and two days later, I, I got a phone call from Steve Rowley, who's the chief scout at Arsenal, asking me actually if I'd ever heard of Arsenal Football Club, which was cool. <laughs> uh, and and yeah, about two weeks later, I believe I was on a, a flight headed to London uh, for for a two week trial and. Uh, it went well enough. I let them know that I wanted to at least finish high school, um, just so I could get that under my belt. Uh, school was always, you know, c- quite important for me. I graduated valedictorian in my class, so I at least wanted to, uh, I at least wanted to have my high school, uh, you know, under my belt, wrapped up. Uh, and then, and then, yeah, I went on two week trial, finished high school, and then ended up moving to London and started my career there.
0: And during this two week trial, you go to Arsenal. You're a high school senior. How soon was it that they put you on the field in a training session with the first team? Uh,
1: so, actually, the so it was, as I said, a two week trial. I I spent most most of the time with the reserves, and the reserves were guys. Um, they've changed structures slightly here now with under twenty threes and um, kind of moved things around. But the reserves at the time were guys that were too old. Uh, to be playing in the youth team, so in the 18s, and I would have been too old had I had I signed, so I, I went straight in with the young pros, basically. Um, or if they were really, really good in the youth team and they were progressing at, at, a, at an excellent rate, then they'd be thrown into the reserves as well, as well as guys that were kind of on the cusp of the first team or in the first team and weren't particularly getting many minutes. Um, so I spent... Um. Yeah. About 95 percent of the time um, with them, and then I believe two days before my trial ended, I went out as as normal with um with the reserves. And when I got out to the pitch, the um the reserve team manager Eddie Nadviky, who's uh, been basically Mark Hughes' uh, number two everywhere. Mark's uh, Mark's gone. He was our reserve team manager at the time. Uh, as we got out there to warm up, he said, "Danny, you're with the first team today." Uh, and it was very abrupt and very just, you know, basically go, you know, go over there, make the make the little jog across the uh, across the pitches, and then uh, take a right turn and into the first team area at the training ground. Um, it actually happened to be media day that day, uh, and I didn't know any of this. And the press is allowed into the training ground on very few occasions uh, here in England. And uh, when I turned the corner, there was about uh, 500 cameramen and journalists on the sideline, and they see me turn the corner. I've never seen. You know, probably my face or anything, and all the cameras turned over. It was during the summer as well, so you know they're all looking for the latest signing, a new story or anything. And I could just hear uh, all the cameras just firing off. Uh, so it was, a, yeah, it was very interesting. And as you mentioned, it was a, it was a remarkably special time at the club as well. Guys like you know, Henri Bergkamp, Perez, Vieira, um, all these guys were there, and it was kind of just they're already jogging around the pitch, so I just join in with them. Uh, and have a you know hour and a half session playing with arguably some of the biggest stars in the world.
0: I got to admit, as confident as I would want to be in that situation, I would not want to just faint seeing those guys out there.
1: Yeah, I, I was. I, I would describe it as. As being, I, I would have been content enough just watching the session to be completely honest. I mean, just because a lot of the guys I'd seen, a lot of the guys had, you know, I'd seen in the Premier League, some of them had played in the World Cup that summer. Cause I was, when I went on my trial, it was 2002. Uh, that first trial was 2002. So, um, you know, the guys that advanced quite far in the World Cup had, um had, had maybe had one or two weeks left in their break, but for the most part a majority of the team was back. Uh and it was yeah, it was interesting. But you quickly realize that you're also trying to impress, you know, to me, the best manager in the world who's standing right there. Um, the chief scout, the scout that brought me over, is standing on, you know, standing on the line there watching as well, you know. So um, and and I've learned, you know, over the past kind of decade, being a scout, that when a scout does bring a player over, it's a it's, it's a pretty nerve wracking experience too, because you put your name on the line in that regard. So, um, so I'm sure Steve at that point was like, okay, let's, well, Danny's been with us for two weeks now. Now he's going to get thrown into the deep end. Let's see how he does. So uh, yeah, it was a very interesting and exciting time.
0: Well, and they offered you a contract. You eventually decided to accept that contract offer and. Uh, Turned down college scholarship offers in the U.S. Uh, you go over there and you become the only American still ever to score for Arsenal's first team. Eventually, tell me the story of how that happened.
1: Yeah, so um, uh, you know, at the time, at the time, get breaking into the first team, and still, it's it's, it's a very very difficult process. I think people um, underestimate just how difficult it is going from. Being, it's remarkably difficult going from the youth team and getting an actual professional contract, and then going from uh, kind of a reserve or an under twenty three now, and, and and breaking into the first team and actually making your debut, and 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 then getting into the first team dressing room is, um, I don't even know, a thousand x more difficult than going from the youth team to the reserves, just because of you know how big business it is now how how you know you open up the net to the entire world of talent as well at that level so um... at at the time uh, the focus on the, the Premier League and the champions league which it, it still is very very high um but the the Carling cup um was a, a i suppose a, a tournament that the youth would get get a chance if you were doing very very well or I, I say the youth the younger players or the players that were in the first team um that were you know not playing regularly would would get a chance to actually play. Um, during during the build up to that uh, to the day that I made my debut, actually, we uh, Arsenal had lost. Uh, they'd, they'd been forty nine unbeaten, and then we lost at Manchester uh, United at Old Trafford the, that weekend, actually, and we ended up drawing Man City in the Cup at Man City. Um, so it was a very uh, it was a very interesting time at the club because I, I'd only seen Arsenal either win or draw for. Uh, the better part of a year and a half so uh, seeing the kind of the mood of the training run was a uh, very very different but i got to train with the first team in the the several days leading up to the game uh, and then the, the, the actual day of the game, I, I didn't make, uh, I wasn't in the starting 11 and, and generally we train with the starting 11 the day before. So you have an idea if you're actually going to be starting, whereas the bench is uh, kind of a, not a toss up, but you're not 100% sure if you're going to be on the bench. So uh, I came into training. They told everybody to wear their, their track suits that day and if you weren't picked, uh, to travel, then you would just have to train as normal. And I, I came into the training ground. They put a list up on the wall, uh, just like they you know do in, in high school sports when you're trying out. <laughs> um, and and it, it's not very difficult to see when my name is on a list uh, because of the <laughs> the length of it. Uh, and I you know I saw it there on the list, and it was uh, it was a wonderful feeling. Um, that was around nine, I suppose nine o'clock in the morning. Kickoff was at seven forty-five that night. So uh, the guys that did get selected. Uh, we took a bus to to a local airport here, got on a kind of a chartered flight and and went to um, went up to Manchester, checked into a hotel, spent the entire day basically sleeping in the hotel, and then um, drove to the game that night. I, as I mentioned, I was a sub. I got to uh, come on in the 82nd minute. We were winning one nil actually at that point. Um, Robin van Persie. Uh, who some of you may know uh, was actually making his Arsenal debut that night. He actually scored his first um, Arsenal goal. And and whenever I tell the story, I say he went on to score several more than I did. <laughs> <laughs> but um he uh, yeah so we were winning one 0 I the game was quite open at that time too. And and we uh, there was a lot of guys making their debut for us that night. Seth, Seth Fabergast was actually playing. He wasn't making his debut because he he made quite a big impact already at the club despite being I think 17 at that time Um, but Manuel Amunia was making his debut, Johan Giroud was making his debut, Um, Philip Senderos, uh, a lot of guys were younger guys like Matthew Flamini was in there as well. Um, So yeah in the 82nd minute I came on I was just pretty much ecstatic to be wearing an Arsenal shirt that had my name on it that I hadn't actually purchased you know at Eurosport and uh, yeah it was it was a great you know it was a great I got to be on the pitch for I think 10 minutes uh, in the in the 92nd minute we broke um, down the right hand side a ball got pulled back to Sesc and Sesc uh, is still you know one of the most intelligent most aware smartest midfielders in the world and um, I pulled Danny Mills out of position and then ran behind him Sesc played a perfect ball and I took a touch and um, I was a striker I was playing left midfield but I was you know I'm a striker at heart I had played as a striker my whole life and uh, despite being you know one nil up and, and actually I, I look at replays now and Van Persie was completely open uh, and I <laughs> likely should have passed to him but uh, he'd already scored and you know I, I, di- I didn't want to be the first American to have an assisted arsenal that didn't have the same uh, <laughs> ring to it so uh, I shot and uh, they actually I, I shot and scored and then They actually ended up Robbie Fowler actually ended up scoring immediately after the kickoff. So we ended up winning 2-1, which was a a pretty nice little, I guess, surprise for me and a a great way to start my Arsenal career, I suppose.
0: I mean, to score in your debut with the first team for Arsenal is pretty incredible, uh, among other things. Um, You trained and played with the famed Invincibles. Uh, They didn't lose a game in the 2003-04 Premier League season. Which players on that Arsenal team, there's so many huge names, but which one stood out to you the most as a teammate and why? Um, man,
1: I would say, I mean, every single one of those guys was was pretty unique in their, um, in their own way, which is amazing because as a team they were just... Uh, incredible and unstoppable, but you you know as as individuals they were all so different, but also alike as well. I mean, they all had this this mentality, this winner's mentality that to go you know to go 38 games without losing, especially as you kind of get to the business end of the season where you're you're a target for absolutely everybody, and and every single game in the Premier League is a tough one, you know. And and going to Highbury and seeing us sometimes go down a goal and then fighting back um, and and still winning or drawing was. Uh, was remarkable. In terms of individuals, uh, I was a huge, uh, several players I was massive fans of. Robert Perez was probably my favorite player. Um, he technically, I think all of them were technically fantastic, but Robert had just this kind of this elegance about him that was very uh, very hard to beat. Uh, he was a very, very classy footballer, and uh, it always looked very, very effortless for him whenever he was dribbling, whenever he was doing things that nobody would think a footballer would be able to do um and then he scored loads of goals as a as a you know as a wide guy as well and he'd come in and he had a very uh, he had a very distinct way of shooting as well he never particularly used his laces it was always the inside of his foot um he always side-footed absolutely everything and uh he could generate quite a bit of power with it but uh he scored some pretty amazing goals um Thierry Henry I think was uh yeah, I, I i still look at him i still look up to him you know as a kid i, I watched him play in the 98 world cup and I, I think he was at the time maybe 21 or 22 as well and um the, the day that i actually went there on my trial he was one of the first players that walked in um and my dad and i were sitting kind of in the reception of the club and he walked in and uh just he came over and shook my hand and said hi i'm thierry I'm, you know it's one of those like, yeah i know <laughs> Uh, but it was just it's it was amazing. He had always at the club. I mean, still now too. Even when he was in New York, you know he it, you don't have to you don't have to be a football genius to know that he's uh, he's got quite a bit of swagger about him. And he knows, you know, he he knew he was the best striker in the world. Uh, and I think it showed week in week out in the Premier League and the way that he he handled himself and the way he scored goals, especially when uh, when they needed him as well. You know, so I think those those two guys were my my, my favorite at the time.
0: We do see Patrick Vieira quite a bit here in New York. He's the coach of NYCFC right now. What was your sense of him?
1: I like pa- Patrick. He's a, a great guy. I mean, he. I, I spoke to him quite a bit because we always seem to get injured at the same time. Um, so when I, (laughs) I don't know why, but, uh, whenever I was doing my, you know, I'm not talking big injuries, but more so just, you know, muscle stuff and, where I'd be be two weeks out and, um, we'd always be kind of on bikes together. We'd be with the fitness coach together and I, yeah, I, I enjoyed it and I started kind of understanding what exactly it meant to be uh, a team captain and a leader. Um, especially at that, you know, at that level, I was, you know, I was the captain for my, my travel team back home, but I don't think I ever particularly knew what it meant to be a leader. I I'd li- I'd like to think that I kind of led my team by scoring lots of goals and showing them that this is how we should play. But at that level, everybody's very good. Uh, in that team everybody's very, very good. And and Patrick was an absolute fighter. And and you'd see it, especially in the Man United, kinda at that time, Man United Arsenal, that that rivalry was incredible. And his um just his ruthlessness is an ability to get in there and slow things down if they needed slowing down, speed them up when they needed speeding up. And um you always knew that guy had your back. And and he was uh he was, uh, he was very, very talented and, and, and a massive leader as well. So I think, uh, yeah, it's, it's great to see him. It, it's, to me, it pains me seeing him kind of associated you know, with, the, with the whole city setup now, but um, it, it's cool to still see him involved in the game for sure.
0: I know you've still got a lot of friends who are teammates from your Arsenal days. Who do you still stay in touch with?
1: I still speak with Philip Senderos um, quite a bit, actually. He's uh, he probably ended up being my um, between him and Moritz Volz, uh, who's who, who went on to have a great career at Fulham, and uh, he played in Germany in the championship as well. Um, those two guys were were really really good friends of mine. I still I still speak quite a bit to Ses Fabregas as well. Sesk um, Philip and I were we all signed the same year at Arsenal and they they actually lived in um in digs which is basically where you go live with um with a family or you know a a woman or a guy that takes after you or looks after you sorry um and they didn't drive and because you know us Americans drive when we're like 15 uh, I moved over <laughs> there had a car and they I think initially we became friends because they wanted to use me for rides home um uh, <laughs> But uh, eventually, we did become friends, and they started inviting me into the house to hang out. Uh, yeah, and we – I always – it was funny. The foreigners would always hang out because we were kind of all in the same boat in terms of being away from home. Um, you know, ling- linguistically, it was a bit different for me, although I didn't understand half the English people anyway. But uh, <laughs> but for, for – you know, Seth didn't particularly speak much English when he was here, and I spoke my high school Spanish, and that's how we kind of connected. Nice um philip philip sendero speaks about seven languages so uh that wasn't an issue but yeah we became good friends off the pitch i think and um and i think that's why we're still you know really good friends to this day
0: i do think i remember we had coffee one morning in barcelona when i was over there for a story and, and you were over there for work and uh, i interviewed sesk on that trip he was still with barcelona i think you were hanging out with him uh later that night um is it still weird at all for you that Cesc plays for Chelsea now? Uh,
1: yeah, it is. It's still, um, it is strange. I think I see him. I I was at his, you know, I was at his debut when he when he broke into the first team. He was, I think, I think, he's two years younger than I am or a year younger than I am, and uh, and he was he was the one that was training with the first team every single day. And I think he was sixteen, I believe, when he made his debut and absolutely ran the show, uh, in a cup game. Uh, so, so to me, he's always kind of been, um, you know, Arsenal, <laughs> and 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 seeing having him leave, it was it was tough to go to Barcelona, but it was something you kind of understood, and and you 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 know you say, okay, fair enough, you know, if if you're from a place that arguably has the best team in the world, best team ever, and and that's just in your backyard, and you're going home, and you've already been there, then uh, you can kind of see it. But uh, seeing him go to Chelsea has been certainly interesting. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Arsen Wenger wrote the foreword for your book. He obviously cares about you as a person. What did you learn about Wenger interacting with him behind the scenes that the public may not see as much of? Uh, I would say
1: he's. It's it's amazing. I, I think in this in this world, especially at this level, um, mm-hmm. there's a lot of people that only know. They only know the sport. They only know their team. They only know the league, um, and that's it. And and there's a lot of there's sadly there's a lot of people that that's just the only thing you can speak to them about. Um, Despite you know being one of the best managers in the world for you know for for ages and being in the conversation with um, you know one of the best managers of all time, he's a guy that is far more than just football. And he knows he knows he can have a conversation to you about. Uh, politics, he can have a conversation about history, and um, and he knows so much about his team and his players. And it, it, and, and I think it speaks volumes of kind of the teams that he builds as well. He knows the players, and it's our job as well as scouts to, um, kind of get a full bio of the kind of guy that you're bringing into the club because you don't want to disrupt the, you know, the, the situation at the club, obviously, with the team and whatnot. But, uh, I remember I actually during my, that weekend of my debut, um, I, I was going down the, the elevator from my room to go eat lunch with the team and, and the boss was in there with me and he said um, he said hey Danny how's it going? I said I'm well. He said how are you excited about tonight? And I was like yeah, you know, we'll, you know it's pretty exciting. Uh and he said how are how are Italian lessons going? And I I mean I, I was I was because my mom's Italian, I you know, I could I speak to her. I was taking Italian lessons just to kind of keep fresh uh through the club, but I, I had no idea that he would have known that, and he just asked you know just how's you know how are the Italian lessons going um and then he asked you know your dad you know your last name, your dad's Iranian right and it was just a kind of a surreal conversation about stuff that had nothing to do with you know with the game and hand or your football in general that he knew um which i I, I quite like because he was a guy that knows his knows his players knows his team but but also knows the game really well.
0: I don't know if you've seen it, but I would highly recommend this to listeners. There was an interview that Wenger did with, I think it was Le Keep Sport & Style magazine about a year, year and a half ago, that is the smartest manager interview I have ever read in my life. And somebody online translated it into English. Um, it's it's astonishing. I, 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 I Basically, would not ever use that word to describe many interviews, but this one is. I, I should, I'll put a link to it, uh, my Twitter, at some point here. Um, but it's when you say that he's a smart guy, it definitely comes through in that interview as well. I mean, Also, his longevity in the Arsenal job is incredible. How has he been able to do that in such a high-turnover job in the modern game?
1: Uh, I think it also goes back to... You know he he knows he knows more than just than just football. You know, like being a guy that um, went and took a job in Japan initially, and then and then kind of came into England as an unknown and, and brought a very kind of different brand of management and style to to the English game, and kind of uh, you know I, I don't want to say disrupted the game, but but definitely brought a new a new way of uh, you know creating a culture within a club. Uh, and and transforming the way they they played um i i think that that you know that means a lot um he's he's certainly spent a lot of time on you know finding very very good young players and and turning them into uh you know from unknowns into absolute world beaters as well uh, and that you know that goes a very long way he 's we're i, I don 't know i can 't speak on on behalf of you know all the clubs now I know football 's become a very very global game but um for for all the time that i 've been associated with the club, Arsenal have had a, a pretty amazing scouting network kind of scattered throughout the entire world um with their you know with their fingers on the pulse everywhere so uh i i think that's cool because he also understands that it is a global game and he's not afraid to bring in guys that nobody's heard of and 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 turn them into players that everybody's heard of and and i think that's helped um kind of him stick around for quite a while
0: does it pain you at all considering the amazing legacy that wenger has that some arsenal fans are highly critical of him sometimes including sometimes now
1: uh, yeah, I mean, uh, of course it does. I I think at the end of the day, everybody's ultra-competitive and wants to win, and we all have the same goal. Uh, you know, the, the manager, the team, the fans, everybody wants to win. Everybody wants to win the Premier League. Everybody wants to win the Champions League. Uh, so I understand why it'd be strange if all of our fans were just completely complacent and said, you know, this is completely fine. Um, it is frustrating as well because he has done – such a wonderful job at the club and, and brought us through some some pretty amazing times in terms of, uh, you know, initially when he came in in 1996 and then uh, get leaving Highbury, leaving all that kind of tradition and history behind and, and going to the Emirates and having to deal with um, a, a, a different, more so limited budget in terms of player recruitment and getting new guys in, um, you know, still finishing in the top four, still making Champions League uh, during all of this time. And, you know, and we've seen in recent years, that some of the biggest clubs in the world with the biggest budgets in the world aren't in the Champions League if they have a bad year, you know. And he's he's been able to navigate those seasons and, um, and consistently be there. So it, it is it is frustrating. I I've been lucky enough and and kind of been humbled enough to know him since you know 2002 in, in terms of my first interaction and um, just seeing how you know how how far kind of everything's come and how different kind of the club is now from when. I, you know, when I went to Highbury the very first time um, on my on my tour, when I was on trial to to now, you know, going to the Emirates for the first time, I remember I just it it felt a bit like a foreign land to me. So I can't imagine what it was like for fans the first time they left Highbury. Had been going there for years, and then uh, had to go to the Emirates, and it's 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 definitely changed now. Um, But yeah, it's I think it's hard to see it happen just because of how much he's you know how much he's done for the club for sure.
0: You had to retire from playing at age 22 due to injuries. You write about this in your book. When you put so much into soccer and have to call it a career that early, what was that like for you mentally to have to deal with?
1: Yeah, it was very hard. I mean, its I don't want to say it's still very hard, but I... Um, Soccer to me was a it was an outlet, you know, mentally, physically, emotionally. Whenever anything you know, whenever anything bad happened, I went. I picked up a ball, went out and played soccer. Whenever I was feeling good or good things happened, I'd pick up a ball and go do the same thing. Um, at 22, when I was at Burnley, um, the doctor after and I'd had I believe three surgeries up to that point on my on my right knee, and we'd just gone on a preseason run, uh, and my knee had swollen up. Pretty massively for uh, for two weeks, and we went to see a doctor, got a scan, and doctor said there's uh, structurally actually nothing wrong with the knee, uh, ligament wise and whatnot, um, but he said, uh, but it looks as if your knee is knackered, and those were his uh, his his English words, about as English as you can get, and he said if if I were you, I'd hang up your boots. Um, if you want to walk when you're 30, and you know, as I said, w- when he said the first bit, when he said everything looked structurally fine, I was, uh, I didn't really care what he had to say for the second piece because I said, oh, I'm fine, I'll just wait a little bit. Uh, but when he dropped kind of the hammer on that second piece of that statement, it was, uh, it was very tough. And I, um, I, you know, I, as you said, soccer to me was my, you know, my life. I'd, I'd always wanted to be a pro. The, the, the opportunity had finally come to become a pro. I didn't know how it would happen when I was growing up in the states, but. Uh, when it was presented to me, I said, wow, this is I never would have thought this would happen, but uh here's my opportunity to become a pro. Um and and yeah, you know, and I had left Arsenal and I'd gone to Burley. It was very, very different, but I was still determined to kind of carve, you know, carve a career out for myself um in England. Even at Ipswich, when I went to Ipswich Town, i played I believe six, I think six games in the league when I was there, six or eight games there. And um, you know, it was it was a level that I was I was comfortable at and I was willing to, you know, I, I was more than willing to put the work in to get myself back into the Premier League. And I was excited to get myself back in the Premier League. So, um, you know, having this happen was was a huge kind of fork in the road for me. And uh, it, it didn't take long kind of me for me to realize, look, I can sit here and dwell and then become a guy that had the opportunity. And then this happened and now Lord knows what he's doing um, or just kind of put it behind me and really focus on what I needed to do next in my life.
0: I want to get into what you Ended up doing next in your life What you're doing now But I also just wanted to ask As someone who's written a book It's not a small thing And I remember running into you This may have been the first time We actually ran into each other Was at a Starbucks in D.C. Several years ago And I think there I don't know did you introduce yourself to me, or was it the other did, way around? Yeah. Okay, yeah. I
1: think you tweet. I, I checked. I checked your Twitter to see if you were indeed in D&D, DC, and you said you were. So I was like, I must
0: be <laughs> <laughs> "Well, I'm glad you did that." But I remember. I think that conversation. You might have mentioned you were writing a book. What went into the decision to write that book, and how hard was it?
1: Yeah, I I've always really really enjoyed writing, and I think. Uh, Traveling all the time when I began, I, I began scouting. Um, I believe I was, I was 23 uh, when I when I began scouting, and um, you know when you're on a plane going everywhere three times a week, flying between 150,000 200,000 miles a year, you have quite a bit of time to think and um, not look at Twitter or Instagram or anything. Then now now you can, but <laughs> because of Wi Fi, but then you couldn't. Um, and I I began kind of just writing about initially about my travels. And then, um, and then I kind of started just writing little snippets of my things I just remembered when I was in England, just for myself. uh, And I'd find myself kind of, you know, laughing or or not getting emotional, but getting a bit nostalgic about my time in England thinking, I'm glad I'm writing this because, you know, in five years time, there's no chance I'm going to remember this. (laughs) Um, I, I, I ended up having a really, really big knee surgery, the one that, not, not that it ended my career because my career had already been done. But they, um, they cut my bone, realigned my joint, put four screws in it, uh, and a cadaver meniscus as well. So that effectively ended kind of any any sort of proper uh, sports that I would be doing. Yeah. Um, and during that time, uh, I had the surgery in Chicago, and my uncle asked me. Um, to, to write about the night that I scored the goal. So I wrote that and he came back from work and he said, Oh, he said, this is really cool. He said, can you tell me what happened next? And then I said, yeah, sure. So I wrote that the next day. And then he said, can you write about what happened prior to that? And then I started realizing I kind of had a little bit of cohesion to the story that I was putting together. Um, and I just continued adding on it as I was traveling. And, uh, I I actually, I ended up telling Steve Rowley, the chief scout, I said, I'd Steve, I've, I've kind of written this book uh about my time in in the u.s and i've I've been speaking to people um thinking about kind of what to do with it and he was he's actually he knows tom watt really well and tom was a ghostwriter for david beckham and he said mm-hmm. danny why don't you let tom read it and just give you it, his advice and um I met with Tom in London the next time I was there. He read it and he he like loved it. I think I think he loved it because it was such a contrast to David Beckham's story, you know. And uh, and as a storyteller himself, he said, you know, this story needs to be out there. This is so cool. This is such a different kind of outlook on the football world and a different reality. Um, so. So yeah, I started pursuing it. I ended up getting in touch with an agent, and um, it ended up getting actually about f- four years after finishing writing it. It ended up getting published the, this past year, so it was a it was a pretty big milestone. As you said, it wasn't it wasn't easy, uh, and it is a quite a bit of work. But it was uh, I, I think it was certainly well worth it for myself. So
0: I think it's awesome, and I think it's cool for Americans as well to read that. Yeah, you know, whether you're a kid, whether you're older, you can go places. As an American in world soccer, and that's people have done that, but the stories need to get out there.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And that was my—I mean, that was my. To me, that was kind of one of the biggest things too in writing the book was um, a lot of people only, especially at that time and now, because of NBC's you know media deal and everything. There's so much more visibility in the league here now. There's amazing content that's produced on a weekly basis in terms of your favorite teams and everything. Um, But then it was. You would basically just watch the game at the weekend for 90 minutes. And then immediately after, you wouldn't even see press conferences. It would cut to either baseball, sports center, you know, something it would cut to that had nothing to do with what you had just watched, basically. So um, there was so much more than just that. And I had, you know, I had no idea about that growing up because I'd watch the same thing on television and then wait seven days and then watch it again on television, you know, <laughs> or, or wait for that one night where they showed all the highlights from, you know, a 30 minute highlight show of all the goals around the world, which was. Uh, which was wonderful, but it, it wasn't enough. And I wanted to kind of shed light on, you know, what happens after the game? What, Where do, do the players, do they just go home and wait for the next game? Or, or what's actually going on? And what's like a normal week like? What's a normal day like? Um, and I, I wanted to shed light on that sort of stuff.
0: You mentioned Steve Rowley, the Arsenal head scout who signed you in the first place when you were playing. He then offered you a job as the club's North America scout. Was that an easy decision to accept that offer?
1: Um, no, again, and actually going Arsenal in the first place was, was, I, I don't want to say it was difficult. It was a dream that I wanted to do, but I think a lot of Americans, uh, they think to themselves, okay, I'm going to go to high school, graduate high school. I'm going to go to college. And then my life will start after that. I think they just, I, I think guidance counselors in high school ingrain that in your head. So, uh, that's kind of the flow you're meant to go. So leaving, Leaving my high school in in Virginia and graduating um, as the valedictorian, having having my guidance counselors tell me good luck on that soccer camp instead of going to college was, <laughs> was quite interesting. Um, but so so there I was, kind of had come back and I I'd, I'd driven up to Virginia Tech. I, as I said, I grew up in Roanoke and Tech's only you know thirty minutes away, and I'd, I'd driven up to Tech several times to get uh, applications and kind of all that good stuff. And um, yeah, I was I was pretty adamant and set on going back to school you know around you know trying at least uh uh, to get back in and when steve called and said would you like to do this uh i thought to myself maybe this could be super therapeutic as well in terms of having a proper segue out of my playing days and 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 still remaining um in the game at at a high level uh with 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 an amazing club so so i ultimately decided that that would be the right choice
0: what I'm sort of fascinated in what scouts do and what separates good scouts from mediocre scouts because there's certain scouts out there that have made a reputation, but what are those good scouts seeing on a repeated basis that others are not?
1: I think, um, yeah, it's a very, well, I think there's there's several things. I, I've learned certainly living here that the, you know it's a very different animal kind of scouting, let's say right here where the team is and where the league that they're playing is in, as opposed to um and and, and now I'm really only doing kind of first team football, so I'll go to premier League games and championship games uh, and and I'm watching kind of the 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 cream of the crop um whereas in the u s it was more or in conquer cap in general, it was far more um foreign scouts have to know their whole territory inside out and it's what you know what 12 year olds are doing well at the moment you know to monitor so you can at least have a heads up on them so when they do turn 15 16 it's not a surprise um, you know what you know what guys are doing well in the under 17 let's say national team what guys are doing well um, you know as i said throughout all of concacaf are any guys doing well in mls doing well enough to actually get seen to to have a conversation with you know steve Rowley about uh, and even in college you know like if there's anybody that's actually performing well enough to to have a chance so uh, it's kind of all this stuff i think looking at players looking at players in concacaf and determining whether or not they'd make it in england i believe was very very tough watching a player anyway and saying okay that guy's going to make it in our team if he comes in he'll fit in uh, he's got the mentality he's got the ability he's got the discipline like that that it's a very very hard job because you're you're looking at something that's not where where it's meant to be and saying will it fit in there and will it 100% work and generally when you're doing that in the premier league or the championship it's going to be a pretty um a, a pretty big uh, transfer whereas looking at a player for example let's say in southern california a boy who's uh, spent his whole life in 70 degree weather living with his family um, you know, very comfortable where he is, and then saying we're going to move you to England, where it's you know forty degrees, it rains every single day. Uh, you might see the sun sometimes. You'll likely get hailed on later on in the day. If you do see the sun, uh, let me throw you here and see how you do. You don't a hundred percent know how it's going to turn out. Um and you can bring kids you can bring kids on trial and they'll do well um and then you might bring them back later and then they just don't end up settling you know it's um it's not uncommon in any in in any of the clubs in the world it's even not uncommon in the first team you know you'll see some pretty high profile amazing signings coming to the Premier League, and the guys just don't settle and end up leaving and going back to their their home leagues and their home countries you know one season later so I think that's the that that's probably the hardest um the hardest part is Uh, you you try to cover all your bases in terms of are they disciplined enough tactically are they intelligent technically will they be able to you know do enough um and then ultimately is their personality going to be strong enough to actually cut it here when the going gets tough when they're away from home when you know they have three weeks where they can't complete a pass like are they actually going to be able to kind of rise above all that and make it and and the players that do make it are the players that are able to do that
0: you identify Gedeon Zalalum uh for Arsenal. He ended up signing with Arsenal. Uh what's the story of you and Gedeon? Uh so I was
1: I, I have I get a lot of uh, inbound uh inbound messages for the next Ronaldo and the next Messi uh and the next Pele and everything uh, as you <laughs> especially because of uh because of social media these days uh and kind of filtering through all these and and, and filtering through sometimes the noise and, and seeing um what if something if something makes sense actually pursuing it especially at the time in Concacaf when you know every every single place i went to was likely a flight um you know if i'm if i'm getting up and going to watch a player it would it would almost 99 of the time it'd been a flight with gideon uh i he actually was living about a mile and a half away from me ironically (laughs) and uh i i got an email from Uh, I remember Matt Pilkington, who was his coach at the time at Olney, and he said, Danny, I I know I don't know you, but Alex Yee, who you do know, is my assistant, and he recommended I reach out to you. Uh, I have a player. He's quite good. He's 13, and he has a German passport. Uh, and the German passport thing was probably more enticing than the actual, like <laughs> I have a player and he's quite good. So I said, okay, well the hard part is, is done. I, I'm not going to go see that he's amazing and then be unable to do anything with him. Um, so I said, okay, cool. I'll, I'll, um, I actually, I actually said, let me just wait a little bit. And I think I waited several months actually. And then he emailed again and I said, okay, I'll, I'll make time and actually come up and watch, watch him train. And I went up, believe it was like a January, um, uh, in in DC, I went to see him train uh, with his club team, and yeah, he was thirteen thirteen years old and uh, remarkably intelligent, tactically aware, more so than any um, more so than any American I'd seen at that time. Sure, certainly, uh, and and technically, he was just on a different uh, on a different level. There's uh you know you know I, I I was lucky enough to go to Arsenal when I was seventeen and see guys like Cesc and see guys. Um, see guys like Johan Giroud and, and guys that came through and played like a bunch of games for Arsenal. And, um, I saw why those guys kind of came through and made it. And, and seeing Sesk at 16 when he came, um, I thought to myself, like, how does this kid make everything look so easily? And I, I kind of had that, uh, watching Gideon amongst his peers, and he was playing, you know, up a couple years as well. Um, he had that kind of air about him as well in terms of, you know, you're in a 5 e 2 and for 10 minutes Gideon was never in the middle just because he was more aware than everybody and was never under pressure because of his movement before the ball came, where he would take his first touch, the passes he laid off and everything. So um, when, I, when I saw him initially, I said, this kid's very different from a lot of the kids that I've seen at this level for, for various reasons. That doesn't necessarily mean he's going to make it. That means okay. Now I'm interested. Let's let's see what he does at a game. You know, in in a week's time or in two weeks' time. So I started tracking him, and um, Matt was very good in terms of not actually letting his kind of letting his parents know that I was even going to games. So I would I would just go to the games and sit on the sideline um, and and watch. Probably over the course of. I would say two, maybe two months. I probably watched him play four or five times, and sadly, his team beat every team like eight zero. So it it didn't do it didn't really do any justice either. So I was like, this is this isn't really helping my you know my decision making uh, in all of this. Uh, and I knew he was he, they were actually going to Dallas Cup in in April. So um, I, I I then was introduced to his parents and said we'd we'd be really interested in bringing your son over. I wanted to make sure that we got we'd arranged it before he went to Dallas Cup because when you do, you know, when you go to big tournaments and you do well, you're going to get seen and everything so, um, yeah, we ended up bringing him over on trial uh, shortly after Dallas Cup and uh, yeah, I think he came over at 14, I believe uh, the first time, just to kind of, just to train and um, he went from training with the under-15s initially, I believe, or under-16s then he was starting with the under-18s and continued to do very, very well and then um, the last, I believe the last two or three days, he ended up actually training with the reserves as a 14 year old and, um, you know, Arsene Wenger, Steve Rowley, Pat Rice, all these guys are actually sat on the sideline watching Gideon. Um, cause they, they actually want to see when youngsters come in and if they're doing well and they're making an impact and they want to actually see what's kind of what's happening as well. And they like to have an eye on, you know, what's going on within the youth system. So, um, yeah, when that happened it was great because you see Gideon with boys that have played in the Champions League that have made their debuts already for the first team. And Gideon was right in the in the mix of it, in the middle, actually influencing the session and getting the ball and laying it off and doing all the things that I'd seen him do, you know, on that cold kind of January night in DC. Uh just doing it at a very you know, at a very high level at this time. Uh so yeah, it was great. He ended up getting, you know, offered the contract. He was too young initially to move over straight away. So once all that, all the legalities were done. Um, he was able to kind of come over here and um, start fighting for his career.
0: You mentioned earlier that a scout feels some pressure when somebody that they've brought over performs, plays on a trial in front of Wenger and the other coaches on the coaching staff. Were you there, or what kind of feelings did you have when he first went over there and they took a look at him, and did the your nerves... Compare it all to the nerves you might have had during your playing career.
1: Um, yeah, it was it was pretty nerve wracking. I mean, it, it's pretty nerve wracking. It's it's easy to say to sit on a on a couch and when you look at a player play and say, "Oh, we should sign this guy." Why why haven't we signed this player? Get on Twitter and in 140 <laughs> characters say oh, the club is stupid and like we should sign these guys. It's very different when you're standing next to you know your your bosses and you've successfully brought a player over. Um, and, and in my – I believe in my uh, seven years that I was in CONCACAF and full-time in CONCACAF, I brought over I believe four players total during that time just because um, we're not a club that says, oh, let's, you know, let's just bring them over and give them a shot if it doesn't work out then, you know, it doesn't matter. It's a, you bring the player over a hundred percent, you know, 150% sure that the club, that he's good enough to sign for the club. And then it's up to the player to actually do it. Um, so yeah, it was, it was pretty nerve wracking. I was there. I actually, we, we, the scouts come with the players and serve kind of as liaisons during the time to ensure that they're, they're comfortable. You know, at, at this point, you've probably established a pretty decent relationship with the family. Um, so his dad was over as well. And, uh, you're, you're a familiar face, which is, you know, something positive when you're in such a stressful kind of environment in a two week, very, uh, very intensive, very, uh, you know, you're, you're fighting for your dream here. So it's nice to have somebody that you recognize from, you know, the other side of the pond there with you. So, uh, but, but during the session, I was sat right there with Steve and, um, with Arsen and, uh, as I said, Pat Rice and, and they were, yeah, they were pretty excited, which was a very good feeling. So it was a very big sigh of relief.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, recently, Gideon uh, was sent on loan from Arsenal to Venlo in Holland. What's your sense of his development? Where he is?
1: I think yeah. So last year, well, last year he went to Rangers. Um, I think one of the things that Gideon's uh, needed to work on is the physical side of the game. Is you know, being being a midfielder in the Premier League is is uh, is no easy task. Being any being in the Premier League is no easy task, but being in the midfield and fighting, uh, you know, fighting those midfields is is uh, quite difficult. So um, I think he went, you know, he went to Rangers with the goal of getting more physical and being able to deal with more the the adult side of the game. Um, you know, this 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 loan deal, it's all about playing in the first team and and um, getting more minutes. You know, I, he's in a very interesting point of his career now, where he at, at that age you have to be playing. You know, especially after you've gotten a taste of playing first team. Um, there's no, There's nothing like knowing that you're actually playing for three points, uh, and it's kind of. I didn't particularly understand the importance of it until I went to Ipswich and then came back to Arsenal. And not that. Not that you say like I'm too big time to be playing in the reserves because the moment you do that, then you're in, in big big trouble mentally, and your career is not going to be going in the path that you want it to. But. There is also something to be said where you like to be in an environment that's remarkably competitive, where there are fans who are paying lots of money to come watch you play each week, um, and and you're fighting for points either to stay, either to stay alive in a league, to get promoted to the next league, uh, and, and you're actually fighting for a cause. Whereas in the reserves, you were more not that you weren't playing for the club or the team, you you were also kind of each week it was like you were on showcase because you're either going to get offered a new contract or you're either playing for you know, to get a contract elsewhere. So uh, for Gideon right now, it's important to be kind of back in that environment playing, you know, he's, and, and, and they're in the second division in Holland and they're, you know, in in a, in a great spot. So he's now getting a pretty good experience in terms of once again, that, that promotion push as well and what it means to fight for promotion uh, and and ultimately see it through and get to the, to the highest tier of football in that country.
0: Now, these days you're not just working as a scout for Arsenal. You also have your own company, soccer without limits you have a mobile fantasy manager game fury 90 that you're involved with tell me about it
1: yeah so several years ago I, a, a good friend of mine adam davis who i um who i met i suppose on the circuit in the u.s as i'd like to say <laughs> um he was uh he was actually an agent uh, he's an american he's an american guy as well he went to unc but he uh he was working for uh, probably the biggest uh, German agency um one of the biggest agencies in the world that's that's located in Germany um we we met on the road and said you know we've we we've got some pretty unique networks and and connections kind of in this space uh I wonder if there's anything for us to kind of do how can we how can we kind of leverage these networks that we've built and create something quite special for fans as well as uh, you know, some of these players as their social following start to get astronomically high and they're becoming kind of brands themselves. Um, so, yeah, so initially we started Swole, uh, which, which was at, at first a content site. We actually got into an accelerator in Miami um, and, and moved out of Miami and got office space for a bit. We started with this content site, um, quickly realized that we weren't particularly enjoying it and we weren't providing any sort of unique value prop to anybody with it. Um, we launched just before the 2014 World Cup. We ended up launching up an iOS version of this game that allowed you to play kind of fantasy soccer every single day through simulations. And uh, Lucas Podolski actually ended up playing about 2,000 games. Damiano <laughs> ended up playing several hundred games during the World Cup. Um, and fans actually quite enjoyed engaging with these, you know, with these influencers. So uh, we took the game down. Ended up getting into another accelerator in San Francisco. Uh, so now we'd hit the big time. We were moving out to yeah. we were moving out to Silicon Valley, ready to uh you know attack the tech space properly. Um and after spending about a year there, we said, you know, we're building a football game for football fans, um you know, with football players actually involved in it. What are we doing here? We need to move to London. So, uh, we ended up moving to London. We've actually um, we've actually raised money from from footballers as well. So Alejandro Bedoya and Maurice Edou from from the American side have um, have invested in us. Uh, Jerome Boateng, Luis Gustavo, Philippe Senderos—these guys that we've kind of known over the years—and um, and really just. Uh, It's amazing these guys specifically because they're very forward-thinking athletes and they understand kind of the value of you know kind of this longer-term vision of what we're trying to succeed with. So uh, we're looking to get the game actually in soft launch and probably in Holland here in a month and then launch at the start of the um, at the start of the season in in August again. So we're we're pretty ecstatic.
0: Nice, congratulations. Thank you. What like how much in the terms of hours are you spending? each week on this compared to your other stuff
1: yeah so this is my this is my day today i i wake up we we have office space here in london um go to the office you know in the morning and i I leave pretty late at night and uh at the weekends i'm i'm generally i go watch my i'm doing one game generally a week for for arsenal and as i mentioned around london in the premier league and the championship um and then i come back and it's something that you're I think when you start a company and it becomes real and you have employees and there's a vision and now specifically we have uh, you know we have uh, investors on board and everything it becomes very real uh, It's hard to switch off and, and not think about it so it, it's taking up a majority, if not all of my time
0: makes sense um, It's interesting because it sounds like you're plenty busy, but I also have read your book uh, I've listened to your podcasts you've re- had regular appearances on Howler and their. Very good podcast. You clearly know the game. Do you ever have any interest in doing media at some point? Whether it was like, uh, you know, TV analysis of Premier League games or something back here in the U.S.
1: Yeah, it's it's definitely been something that's um, I don't want to say on the back burner or on my mind, but I I. I always when I when I watch games and I see analysts speaking about the game and I see people breaking down the game at halftime and after the game and whatnot and specifically now in the US with all these new shows um talking about the game I yeah I, I think it'd be it 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 definitely be fun at the moment uh, I am I'm, I'm completely enamored with what I'm doing you know for for Arsenal as well as you know with Swole on my on my daily basis but um it, it definitely could be something in the future I think I, I think not from a point of view where I just want to be on television, but I think I've, I've had the a unique perspective on the game and learned from some of the most interesting kind of well-respected people in the game as well. Um, and, and it's things that I, that I haven't particularly heard elsewhere, uh, you know, even on television with some of the experts, uh, it's some of these things that I'd love to kind of share with people as well that, I, that I've learned
0: over the years. Well, I think that would be a cool thing. One last question for you here. Um, You talked earlier about one of the first questions you had about Gedeon Zalalem was, you know, does he have a European passport? He did. And that was an important thing, not just his skill. Um, We've seen Christian Pulisic be able to get an EU passport and be able to start his career at Dortmund before the age of 18, which is currently the limit for minors transferring between countries. But if you have that EU passport, you can go to Europe. Are you in a position where you wish FIFA would reconsider that rule because so many American kids are prevented from what you had with an Italian passport or a with a Croatian passport of getting that opportunity in Europe?
1: Yeah, I think it's a tough one because there's – i've seen I've seen kids as well um, or I've heard stories and agents have told me and not not specifically kids that I've been involved with that um, come with false expectations and then just end up in in situations they don't need to be in and um, the football world, despite being You know the beautiful game has can have quite a murky side to it as well, and I think it's done in the best interest of protecting um, protecting certain people from doing certain things with players um, that might not be ready to come over here. You know, and and giving them false promises. So although it is quite limiting and it it can be very frustrating, um, I think there's there's still very good there's still very good, there's other options that are very, very good um, that allow players to come over and develop in countries and kind of work their way through um, through different ways. And, and, and- you know the reverse of that is Christian's good enough goes to Dortmund is playing weekly at Dortmund, and you say, "How come we can't have that all the time with American players you know so that's the reverse of that and i I'm hundred percent on board with that as well, like that's you know me having the opportunity to just move here without any issues once I got my italian passport was was wonderful, but um I also see the flip side, so it's a, it's a bit of a difficult question. <laughs>
0: Well, Danny, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk. I've really enjoyed the conversation. He's Danny Carbassioon. You can find him on Twitter, Snapchat, and Instagram at dcarbassioon. His book, The Arsenal Yankee, can be bought on Kindle. It's also at thearsenalyankee.com. Thanks for joining the podcast, Danny.
1: Thanks so much, Green. I appreciate it, man.
0: Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Danny Carbassioon, as well as everyone at Digital Media and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, there are other great new and archived episodes you can check out, including my recent interviews with Sunil Gulati, Sean Francis, Moya Dodd, Kate Abdo, Colin Udo, and Rory Smith. Do me a favor, and if you like this podcast, please share it with your friends, subscribe and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.